Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Macron's mission. The French president heads to Moscow for a crucial meeting with Putin. Racism row. Spotify's CEO condemns Joe Rogan's language but says he won't silence the podcaster. And Olympic interview. Chinese tennis tennis player Peng Shui speaks to French media. It's Monday. Let's make a move. A very warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday. Another very important week of global diplomacy set to kick off in Moscow. The heads of France and Russia sit down this hour to discuss the crisis in Ukraine. The very latest on that in just a moment. But first, let's get you caught up on the markets. U.S. stocks on track for a flat to modestly higher open as a new week of trade gets underway on Wall Street. The major U.S. averages posted solid gains last week, with the Nasdaq rallying almost 2.5 percent. But it was another volatile week of trade capped by Friday's stunning upside surprise in the January jobs report. Shares of Amazon rallied 13 percent on Friday after its strong earnings. That was the biggest single-day market cap rise for any U.S. stock on record. That followed Facebook parent company Meta's 26 percent plunge on Thursday. That's the biggest one-day market cap fall in Wall Street history. Shares of both firms are little changed in pre-market trading. Meantime, in Asia, Chinese investors were back at their desks after the week-long Lunar New Year holiday and in a bullish frame of mind, with stocks there rallying some 2 percent. All right, let's get right to the drivers. This hour, a critical summit for France's President Macron. He's in Moscow to convince Russia's Vladimir Putin to abandon any plan to invade Ukraine. Tensions continue to simmer as new satellite images show Russian troop movements near the Belarus-Ukraine border. Alex Marquardt is in Kyiv. John Harwood joins us from Washington. Alex, let me start with you. How does Uh, President Macron hoped to de-escalate the situation in this meeting he's having with Putin today. Well, Allison, this is a critical part of this flurry of diplomacy that we're seeing not just today, but playing out in the coming days. Of course, German Chancellor Schultz is in Washington, D.C., meeting with President Biden today. And then there is this crucial meeting in Moscow with President Emmanuel Macron of France going to visit his Russian counterpart. Now, this is especially key because Macron is the Western leader who has perhaps had the most contact uh, with President Putin in recent weeks. Uh, We've heard President Putin call President Macron a quality interlocutor. Those are kinder words that we've heard uh, than we've heard about uh, the U.S. side. And so the effort by the French president is certainly going to uh, try to get President Putin to continue with with these diplomatic talks. France is very much on the same side as the U.S. and the rest of NATO when it comes to you know, refusing out of hand these Russian demands that uh, Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO and that NATO withdraw from Eastern European uh, countries. But France is going to try to push a sense that there are other areas uh, that can be agreed upon, that can be discussed in order to try to prevent a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Allison, of course, Every day that talks are happening and guns are not firing is is a good one, but it's still far from clear what President Putin's intentions actually are. As you noted, uh, we do have evidence from satellite imagery that the Russians continue to move their troops closer to the Ukrainian borders, not just on the Russian side of the border, but also from the Belarusian uh, side of the border. We heard from the White House saying on Sunday that this invasion 
could happen as soon as tomorrow. It is that question of intent that really is the biggest one. And I was speaking with a, a senior European official who said that what they're getting, what the, their sense is uh, from the Russian defense side, so the military side, is they don't understand uh, what President Putin's uh, intent is. And they understand, they do understand, however, that if there were a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, that it would be extremely costly uh, in terms of uh, the, the troops uh, and, and others, uh, civilians included, who could really lose their lives. So, Allison, the hope is that this, this conversation in, in Moscow today will help keep the conversations going and help uh, you know, bring this all to a, a diplomatic conclusion. But we should caution that there is no real you know, major breakthrough expected out of Moscow today. Allison. Okay, Alex, uh, thanks for that. John, let me go to you and ask you about uh, what's going to happen at the, at the White House later this afternoon, the White House meeting with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Uh, he's accused of being soft on Russia. What, what's the goal here uh, for the chancellor uh, to meet with uh, President Biden? I think, Allison, it's to show a united front. You know, it's fascinating the way these different leaders of the Western alliance are playing different roles. As Alex was just explaining, Emmanuel Macron of France has been a very energetic interlocutor trying to uh, uh, suss out that diplomatic off-ramp, some way of reassuring uh, the Russians that uh, uh, their security is not somehow threatened by NATO without uh, crossing the line and promising that Ukraine won't eventually be a member. President Biden, on the other hand, is outlining in very stark terms what the United States thinks Russia may be about to do, in very stark terms what the consequences would be in terms of sanctions, unplugging Russia from the global financial system, cutting off that Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline. Uh, and Olaf Scholz, the new German chancellor, has been keeping a very low profile. And I think this is an effort by him uh, to try to elevate that profile and say we stand with the United States. Now, there are differences because, of course, the Germans want that Nord Stream pipeline to go through. And when the United States says uh, it's going to stop if uh, Russia invades, Germany has been pretty ambiguous about it, saying, um, well, we're going to be with the United States, but not specifying what they're going to do on uh, Nord Stream. I'm sure that the leaders will get questioned about that today at their news conference. Uh, but this is trying to find, with each uh, leader playing different roles, uh, a way to show the Russians that uh, all of this adds up to a united front in terms of trying to deter Russian aggression and find that diplomatic off-ramp. Because the United States itself, even while warning uh, of the serious sanctions that would uh, befall uh, Russia if they invade Ukraine, the United States very much wants to have that diplomatic off-ramp taken. Under no circumstances is the United States going to commit troops to Ukraine. Uh, and so very much Joe Biden and his administration wants to avoid active conflict. And they're uh, uh, working in different ways, all these leaders, to bring that about. Yeah, you make you make a good point there, John. And, and I'm going to ask you this question, Alex. Um, you know, it's interesting to see. I get it that the you know leaders of various countries they want to show a united front, but it is interesting to see Emmanuel Macron, the French president, really take the lead, and the focus is squarely on him. Kind of the hopes are are set on him to try to make a breakthrough today. Although you know it's tempered with with the reality. How much though is the U.S. role being kind of taking a back seat uh, in these negotiations? 
I don't think it is taking a backseat, Allison. In fact, you've seen the Russians from the very beginning, let's say in, in, in the more heightened moments of this crisis in the past few weeks, uh, really trying to make the point that it is the Americans who they want to deal with. You'll remember earlier in January, they had this series of meetings uh, both in, in Geneva and Brussels, and they kicked those off with one-on-one -on -one discussions uh, with the U.S. side. There, there are, um, you know, there are, there are some very significant things that the Russians want the Americans to do. Uh, and that's, that primarily uh, centers around discussions over um, missile placement uh, in Europe, specifically, you know, the question of American missiles, offensive missiles in, in Ukraine, which, of course, the Russians don't want to see. Um, so this isn't Putin pushing the U.S. aside. Um, this is certainly an effort, as John was saying, uh, by the NATO allies to, to show that they have this united front. Uh, admittedly, President, Macron, uh, President Putin it seems to have a closer relationship with President Macron, so why not try to take advantage of that to, to uh, convince the Russian leader to take that diplomatic off-ramp. But we are also going to then see the German Chancellor, the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, uh, in, in uh, Moscow next week having his own uh, meeting with, uh, with the Russian president. So he is really, you know, this is a diplomatic effort on, on all fronts, Allison. Okay, Alex Marquardt, John Harwood, thanks to both of you. Peloton has been struggling to keep up with its pandemic-fueled growth. So could a new owner be the answer to its problems? The troubled fitness phenom has reportedly sparked interest from potential buyers, including Amazon and Nike. CNN's Paula Monica joins me now with more. You know, I saw this coming, Paul. The sharks are now circling, though. They smell blood in the water when it comes to Peloton. Do you think this could turn into a bidding war? And you, have you heard of any others or are there any other suitors uh, that would make sense? Yeah, Allison, there has been some chatter as well. Analysts speculating that Apple, which clearly wants to be a bigger player in fitness with uh, its uh, fitness app and the Apple Watch, could possibly be a bidder for Peloton as well. I would be a little cautious here, though, Allison, about the possibility of a bidding war. Yes, Peloton is an attractive asset from the sense of you've got about 6 million largely affluent consumers that use these services and products, you know, particularly the bikes and the treadmills. But Peloton continues to lose money. There's a lot of competition from lower priced uh, companies as well with cheaper bikes, cheaper exercise equipment. People are starting to go back to the gym as well and not work out as home, at home as much because of COVID restrictions being relaxed because of vaccinations, things like that nature. So I'd be a little skeptical of going all in on this notion that Peloton is going to be an imminent takeover target. Hmm. Yeah, it makes me wonder what is so attractive about Peloton that there seems to be all this interest. And then, of course, there come the earnings. Peloton's earnings it reports tomorrow. What are we expecting there? Yeah, they report tomorrow. Uh, they are expected to once again lose money. It will be very interesting to see if CEO John Foley addresses any of the takeover chatter at all. If the company puts out anything in its earnings statement that talks about the speculation or if they just uh, you know want to go forward and uh, you know try and convince Wall Street that it's all systems go and that they're working on figuring out some of the uh, issues that are uh, you know affecting the company right now there have, you know obviously been talks about production cuts because of demand waning so 
you know, I think that Peloton faces a, a tough road ahead. I think that, you know, I'm not going to go so far to say that it was a fad per se, because I think people are genuinely interested in working out, being healthier and eating better. It's just a classic case of there's too much competition. Peloton is not the only game in town. And uh, it's going to be tough for them going forward, I think, unless they do wind up getting acquired. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting story to watch. Paula Monica, thanks so much for breaking all of that down. More controversy surrounding Joe Rogan. Because I'm not racist, but whenever you're in a situation where you have to say, I'm not racist, you f***ed up. And I clearly have Rogan apologized over the weekend after a video of him frequently using the N-word on his podcast spread online. Overnight, Spotify's CEO condemned the podcast host, but said silencing Rogan isn't the answer. Let's bring in CNN's Brian Stelter. Brian, good to see you. And this is yet another controversy for Spotify that popped up. But, you know, this begs the question, you have to wonder if Spotify knew about these previous podcasts. I mean, how do they sign a $100 million plus contract with him and, and never look at his earlier podcasts? Right. If they thought he was that valuable, didn't someone go and listen to the archives, listen to all the episodes? Uh, it's mind boggling. And I have not received any straight answers from Spotify about this or about that. Uh, I posed that question over the weekend. How could this have been an unknown? But maybe it was known. Maybe Spotify decided that the risk was worth the financial reward. If I know one thing about media scandals and tech scandals, it's that they're always worse on the inside than they look from the outside. And that's what's happening at Spotify. You have these employees who were in absolute revolt. That is why Daniel X's letter is so emotional and so intense. His letter overnight to the employees basically saying, I hear you. I know you're furious with me. I'm going to try to do right. But he doesn't have any clear answers. Yes, he says he's going to spend $100 million on new programming uh, featuring marginalized communities, the same amount that they allegedly spent on Rogan to bring Rogan onto the platform. But Allison, when, when he says we're not going to silence anyone, we're not going to silence Rogan, this is not about silencing. This is not about cancel culture. This is about a company that made an exclusive distribution deal with a very controversial figure, just like any other media company. It's basically just a media deal that's gone sideways for Spotify. If Rogan could post his podcast by himself on Spotify whenever he wanted to, that's what we do. That's what lots of people do. The difference here is this exclusive licensing deal between Spotify and Rogan, and that is why employees are furious. How much, Brian, does this intensify the, the pressure on Spotify to kind of do something other than the statement that was put out to its employees and really define what kind of company Spotify wants to be? Right. It ends up being about values. What are your brand values? What are your employer values? And when you have so many staffers who are upset with the company's decisions about Rogan, then they end up in a real bind. So X is going to announce, you know, uh, you know, these, these, this funding and he says he's going to have meetings and bring in more consultants. But the headline from this weekend is that this N-word controversy erupted on social media. Uh, Rogan apologized, but Spotify stood by him. They can, they can talk about values, they can talk about dignity and transparency and equality, but at the end of the day, they're keeping Joe Rogan. At least it seems that way for now. Yes, they are, at least for now. Brian Stelter, thanks so much. Thanks. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Britain is marking 70 years since Queen Elizabeth took the throne. 
Troops honored the Queen's historic reign with a 41-gun salute in London's Green Park Monday morning. Another salute takes place later at the town at the Tower of London. The Queen has received congratulatory messages from the Prime Minister and her son, Prince Charles. After nearly two years of strict travel restrictions, later this month, Australia will reopen its borders to international travelers who are double vaccinated against COVID-19. Prime Minister Scott Morrison stressed that the vaccination rule will apply to everyone, citing last month's deportation of men's tennis number one, Novak Djokovic. Across Canada, chaotic protests over COVID-19 rules are moving into a second week. The capital city of Ottawa is under a state of emergency. Demonstrators have blocked roads, causing traffic mayhem. As officials in Ottawa investigate more than 60 cases in connection with the protests, many involving hate crimes. Still to come on First Move, Europe moves to secure its energy supplies as tensions with Russia rise. I speak with the EU's internal markets chief. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. The Wall Street Trading Week kicks off in just a few minutes from now, and it's still looking like a flat to modestly higher open for stocks. A bit of a respite, perhaps, after last week's wild price swings. And it's a merger Monday in the U.S., in the aviation sector. Frontier is buying rival budget airways Spirit in a stock and cash deal worth more than $6.5 billion. The two companies say the deal will lead to even lower fares. But antitrust officials will surely want to have a look at this one. Spirit set to rally, some 13% once that opening bell rings. Meantime, a strong takeoff Monday for shares of Qantas Airlines. They soared up more than 4.5% on news that Australia will open its borders to international travelers for the first time since COVID lockdowns. Now to day three. Highlights of the Beijing Winter Games, and who better to bring in but Christina McFarland. She joins me now. You know, I had, I, my mind was focused, my eyes were focused on curling, but something tells me you had better drama to focus on today. <laughs> well, I tell you, Alison, there was plenty of it. We're just three days in, and I tell you, there were a lot of eyes on the women's skiing uh, on Monday as Big Hope Michaela Schifrin took to the slopes for the first time. She is, of course, one of the greatest alpine skiers of all time and is hoping to win the first of a possible five medals in the giant style on Monday, of which she is, of course, the defending champion. But unfortunately, disaster struck for her within seconds of taking to the hill, skiing out after only turn five. Uh, it's a huge blow to her. She said afterwards that it was a mistake she will never get over. Uh, Schifrin is looking to become the first American to win three golds in a single Winter Games. But instead, of course, in her wake, it was Sweden's Sarah Hector who took gold, uh, which isn't really a total surprise. She is the World Cup leader in that discipline. And uh, that win for Sweden actually putting them top of the medal tables after that event. Uh, elsewhere on the slopes, there was an emotional gold medal win for Canada's Max Paro in the men's snowboard slope style. And Alison, what a comeback story this is. Three years ago, Paro was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma only 10 months after winning a silver medal in the last games in Pyeongchang. He underwent 12 rounds of chemo. He said he had no muscles, no energy. And yet on Monday, he laid down a brilliant, splintering second run. The best of his life, he said, with a score of 90.96 to take gold. There wasn't a 
dry eye uh, in the house. And uh, finally, of course, we had a chance to see the poster child of these games in action, Eileen Gu, skier, model, musician. I'm sure you've heard the name already. Uh, she is born, of course, to a Chinese mother and an American father. And Gu was actually raised in California, where she learned to ski, but made the controversial decision of these games to compete for China, uh, these games being her first. And, and since making that decision, she has become a household name in China, where you can see her face blasted over billboards, magazine covers, millions of followers, followers on social media. And while some, of course, have criticized her decision to compete for China, Gu says she's simply been trying to be a role model in the way she's seen other Chinese-American athletes who've inspired her. She is expected to medal and is predicted to walk away with three pieces of silverware in Beijing after already winning eight times on the international circuit, just 18 years of age, I might add. Uh, she was in action in the qualifying of the women's big air on Monday, where she finished fifth, which means she will now go through to compete for her first medal on Tuesday in that event. And Alison, to carry all of that on her shoulders at just 18 years of age, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. That certainly is. She is still a teenager. <laughs> Christine McFarland, thanks very much. Also in Beijing, the International Olympic Committee president met with Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai, who wasn't seen for a time after making claims of sexual assault against the former Communist Party leader. She also gave an interview to a French newspaper. Selena Wang has the details. For many, it's the most anticipated meet of the Winter Games. International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach and Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai at dinner inside the Olympic COVID-closed loop. But censorship questions swirl, the IOC not willing to provide images of the pair's meeting. A degree of transparency came the next day when Peng sat with journalists from French sports paper L'Equipe. The nearly hour-long interview hitting on Peng's emotional accusation of sexual assault and her immediate disappearance from the public eye. It's all, according to Peng, just an enormous misunderstanding. And Chinese Olympic official playing chaperone. The reporter saying he knew he would have to look past the tennis player's words. She was very cautious about our question and our answer. But as I said, it's, I'm done speak Chinese. She's done it. Peng is herself a three-time former Olympian. Last November, the tennis star posted a painful message to social media, accusing this man, a former Chinese vice premier, once among the country's most powerful, of sexual assault. The post gone from Chinese social media within half an hour, while Peng fell silent. For more than two weeks, many around the world feared for her safety as the Chinese censors went to work deleting all traces of her accusation and scrubbing international coverage from China's airwaves. China blocked our feed. It was too late to stop the global outcry. Some of the biggest names in sport offered their support, fearing she was being held against her will, while China attempted to stem the criticism, initially with a letter that state media said was from Peng, insisting everything is fine. Then she reappeared, happy and smiling, in videos posted on Twitter, not seen in China, that the Women's Tennis Association said may also be staged. The WTA took a firm stance, halting all upcoming tournaments in China. We have to start as a world making decisions that are based upon um, right and wrong, period. This is bigger than the business. Beijing. But the Beijing Winter Olympics would not be stopped, and Thomas Bach has taken on the task of reassuring the world. The IOC treated it as something to basically be swept under the rug. What a sad, sad state of affairs. 
the Chinese propaganda machine in overdrive. Peng shown off by state media at a ski competition in Shanghai in December, alongside basketball legend Yao Ming. The Chinese government has not acknowledged the sexual assault allegations, but its foreign ministry said it hoped the, quote, malicious speculation about her would stop. Sunday's Lakeep report is not the first time Peng has said she never made the accusation of assault. But now, in telling a Western outlet that she didn't disappear, she said she just had too many messages to respond to, that she herself deleted the accusation. But no inquiry has been announced. And there is still no way of knowing whether Peng has been allowed to speak her own mind. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. You're watching First Move. The market open is next. The European Union wants to shore up its energy supplies in a bid to reduce its dependence on Russia. The EU's top official said it's in talks about buying more gas from the United States, Norway and others. At the moment, Russia supplies 40 percent of the EU's gas. The head of the European Commission says the Kremlin is using energy supplies for political leverage. Joining me is Thierry Breton. He is the EU Internal Market Commissioner. He's also in charge of the bloc's COVID vaccine drive. And welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Let's start with what's happening uh, with Ukraine and, and Russia. You know, we, we see President Macron in Moscow, the Moscow. German chancellor in D.C. Is the EU united on Russia? Of course, the EU is extremely united on Russia, and we have been always extremely vocal. Uh, of course, um, uh, till now, uh, we had uh, uh, many discussions, and, uh, and you know that uh, President Putin was uh, uh, trying to have a discussion with uh, uh, one member state or the other one. But now we are entering into the uh, uh, serious discussion. And this is why now our leader, uh, the president of the EU, is now discussing himself in Moscow, by the way, right now, when we speak together. So we are entering into the serious discussion now. He will have a long discussion today with him, and I think it's timely. Commissioner, you know, as the conflict between Ukraine and Russia heats up, the Kremlin is using gas supplies as a political weapon. That's as natural gas prices shoot higher and Europe's energy crisis is deepening. How will Europe cope if Russia cuts off its gas? Well, you know, first, uh, maybe I will correct a little bit what you said. It's not 40 percent. It's more 30 percent uh, that uh, we uh, supplied from Russia. So we can definitely uh, cope with it. Uh, uh, we will have other suppliers. There is a lot of uh, capacity elsewhere. Uh, and uh, by the way, um, Russia needs also to export its gas like hell. So uh, we have, on the other hand, uh, be, uh, a very, uh, um, uh, um, we have been very clear, on the other hand, uh, that if something happened, and we want to uh, de-escalate now, as you know, here in Europe, but if something happened, uh, uh, um, the uh, consequences will be massive. So I think uh, everybody now um, has to be maybe a little bit more cautious. And again, this is why it's good now that now, at the right level, we are entering into sales discussion. 
The European Commission is coming under some criticism, though, after unveiling a long-delayed proposal to designate natural gas and nuclear power as sustainable sources of energy. And this is a plan that's angered climate activists who are calling it greenwashing. And it's actually one that puts the European Union's climate change targets at risk. I even saw on Twitter the Austrian chancellor tweeted, I cannot understand the decision of the EU. Uh, Commissioner, can you help us understand this decision? Oh, I have been always very clear. Um, uh, uh, if we want to achieve our target, uh, we need nuclear energy. By the way, we will need all sources of decarbonized uh, energy. So I've been very, always very clear. Uh, our objective is to reach our target, uh, in other words, uh, to be zero CO2 but by the end of um, um, uh, 2050. And in order to do this, uh, we may not like it, but we will need nuclear energy. Uh, today, we are uh, producing 26% of uh, our electricity uh, with nuclear energy here in Europe. By 2050, when you add everything, it should still be at least 15%. But at the same time, we need to multiply by two uh, the capacity of uh, um, uh, um, uh, to produce uh, electricity in Europe. So in other words, yes, we will need uh, probably to achieve our CO2 uh, target uh, uh, to invest uh, uh, around 500 billion euros in nuclear uh, uh, plants, uh, but of course, uh, fully secured um, uh, by the end of 2050. And this is, by the way, uh, what uh, will be uh, allowed uh, with this uh, so-called taxonomy. Mm-hmm. All right, turning to, to other issues, the EU CHIPS Act, uh, specifically the EU CHIPS Act and semiconductor package that's, that's expected to be unveiled tomorrow. Ultimately, this is really going to come down to money. I'm curious how much will the EU invest in this? Will they get outspent by China and the U.S.? Oh, that's a very important subject because, you know, um, everybody knows uh, that we are today in Europe the leader in R&D in semiconductors, above everyone. But it's true that, uh, like the U.S., we are manufacturing too much our semiconductors in Asia. U.S. and Europe uh, produce 10 percent both uh, um, uh, of what is needed in semiconductors worldwide. We have decided, us in Europe, to multiply by four, by four, uh, the production of semiconductors by the end of this decade. So in order to do this, we will have uh, three packages. First, we will invest uh, 12 billion euros, 12 billion euros in pure R&D to continue to lead the rest uh, in uh, in R&D. And by the way, uh, with um, uh, uh, cutting-edge technologies uh, below two nanometers or one nanometers, which is extremely advanced technology. The second pillar uh, will be uh, to uh, support fab and mega fab, and that's extremely important because, of course, we know that the, the demand is here. So it's extremely important to support uh, this investment, mm-hmm. uh, and this is what we will do uh, with the, the third pillar, roughly with 30 billion euros. And the third pillar will be to support startups. That's extremely important to allow our innovative startups uh, to be able to develop um, uh, not only uh, new technologies and services, but also to have the funds. So we will have a specific fund between two to four billion uh, uh, euros uh, to support this. So altogether, it will be, yes, above 50 billion uh, dollars uh, to support again um, our semiconductors industry. And by the way, I think it is pretty comparable uh, with what my friend Gina Raimondo is doing with the U.S. Mm. Chip Act. 
Let me quickly ask you this, you know, as we hold our breath for a possible next variant of the coronavirus, is it even going to be possible to adapt vaccines to target those variants, which would mean those vaccines would have to be developed and distributed very quickly? No, that's a very good question because you know uh, Europe now is um, is a world leader in in in, in producing uh, cap, um, uh, mRNA vaccine uh, uh, from far. So we have a lot of capacity here in Europe to do this, and 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 it's true that um, what is uh, probably uh, uh, better than for other vaccines with mRNA vaccines is that we can adapt pretty quickly uh, a new vaccine uh, within roughly something like three months. Uh, uh, when uh, we see a new uh, aggressive variant. So the, the, the answer to the question is yes, we will be able to do this. And we will have also the capacity to produce uh, this uh, new vaccine very quickly for us. But as you know, the philosophy of Europe is also for the rest of the world because we are the um, uh, world leader in uh, export of uh, um, mRNA vaccine. And we intend to continue to do this for uh, our friends and partners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, Thierry Breton, European Commissioner for Internal Market. Grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kotick. A new trading week is underway on Wall Street. U.S. stocks are mostly higher in the early going as investors await fresh earnings from the likes of Disney, Coca-Cola and Twitter. More than 80 S&P 500 companies will be reporting over the next few days. Meantime, U.S. bond yields are pulling back a bit. A bit of relief for investors after benchmark 10-year yields pushed through 1.9 percent Friday following that strong U.S. jobs report. A lot will be riding on U.S. inflation numbers that come out on Thursday. U.S. consumer prices are expected to hit new 40-year highs, putting new pressures on the Fed to tighten policy. European bond yields are on the rise as well on rising speculation that the ECB will begin raising rates later this year. Art Hogan is Managing Director and Chief Market Strategist at the National Securities Corporation, and he joins us live. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So we have a slew of earnings this week, inflation data coming out. Uh, my guess is that the focus is more going to be on the inflation data. What do you think investors should be expecting this week? And do you anticipate inflation data that we're going to get? Is it going to be better or worse or maybe even the same? Yeah, you know, uh, you bring up a really good point. So we just had a terrific jobs number last Friday. And in a real sense, for a number that surprised so much, not just on the actual print and the revision from the month before, it wasn't that much of a market mover. Of course, we saw yields sneak above 1.9% for a bit, and they're backing down again today. But I think that the, the most important piece of economic data now in the, in the current situation is anything that gives us a read on inflation. So the CPI certainly falls right into that neighborhood. It comes out on Thursday. And the year-over-year numbers, which are still uh, um, compared to a very low base uh, 12 months ago are going to be eye-poppingly large, but we suspect that the sequential increase is going to be down on a month-over-month basis. I think that's going to be the pattern for the first quarter, where we see the month-over-month changes decreasing in order of magnitude and likely start flattening out. I think we've reached, we're at or about peak inflation right now, I think, and I think that gets those numbers start to get better as we work our way through the first quarter and into the second quarter. So I think the trepidation over how aggressive or how hawkish this Federal Reserve is going to be this year likely pulls back a bit. And and, and we start paying attention to things like the other pieces of the puzzle, better earnings and certainly better economic data across the board. 
But it's hard to not focus on what the Fed is doing, at least at the moment. Um, you know, you look at these uh, aggressive takes on, on what, the, what what could happen. Bank of America calling for seven rate hikes this uh, this year. Uh, you know, the market really seems to be searching for clarity with these rate hikes. Um, bank analysts, though, they seem to be the ones making the calls. It feels like the Fed kind of has lost control of the conversation here and is letting banks drive the story here and set the tone. How much of a mistake is that? Well, uh- If there's a mistake being made, it's likely being made by the folks in the street like myself versus the Federal Reserve, who likely doesn't know how many times they have to raise rates this year. I think they're going to raise rates 25 basis points in March. That seems to be the only certainty that we have right now on their dot plots and their summary of economic projections. They've told us that there's likely three and maybe there's four. But the, the, the difference between where the Fed is and what they've told us so far, there's been a very transparent Fed. Um, and the street is the streets sort of playing this game of leapfrog and everyone wants to be a little more hawkish than the next person. So Goldman comes out with five and Morgan Stanley comes out with six and Bank of America comes out with seven. So I think that the, where the mistake is going to be made is the, the street rushing to a place in a linear fashion that is far askew from where the, what the Fed might actually do. And I think that as we start to see some of the data coming in, and this is going to be a very data dependent Fed, they'll likely let us know. And if they're going more than three or four times, they'll let us know along the way during the process. And I think right now we're just in that sort of anticipation phase. And I think that causes so much concern and, and, and wild actions, certainly in equity markets that we've seen so far this year. What would you tell someone who has some cash on the sidelines how to invest in these volatile times? Is uh, the opportunity really in tech? Uh, where, do, where do you see the most opportunity? Interestingly, if you go back and look at the four rate hike cycles that we've seen over the last 30 years, what's happened in the first year has been the S&P 500 actually does okay. It typically does about half what it had done the year before. So that points to an S&P 500 having high single digits or low double digits total return. But that the, the sector moves typically tend to be on the front end of that first year is the economically sensitive cyclicals. So think about banks, industrials, materials. They tend to outperform in the front part of this. And then in sort of the back half of that first year of rate hikes, um, you tend to see growth come back into favor, especially if rates are going up for the right reasons. But it's the kind of growth names that are measured by a price to earnings, not a price to revenues or a price to sales. So you want to make sure you're looking at growth, but growth that actually is measured on a PE basis. So I think that if you had a barbell approach this year, you're likely going to outperform this market, meaning you want to have exposure to both economically sensitive cyclicals and growth and make sure your growth side is is anchored to companies Mm -hmm. that have cash flows and throw off earnings. Okay, Um, Art Hogan, live from Nantucket, Massachusetts. Looks pretty there. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, why space needs a sweep. The White House wants to rid Earth's orbit of space junk. We'll show you how next. Welcome back to First Move. We've been exploring how people, communities, businesses, and industries in Japan are innovating and preparing for a world beyond the pandemic. Today, CNN's Blake Essig looks at how a tech giant formed in 1935 is hoping to transform Japan's traditional work culture. For many people living in cities across Japan, this is a familiar scene. Salary men and women heading to work on their morning commute. For decades, these crowds have been a symbol of the country's workforce and a reminder of its notoriously rigid work environment. The long hours, strict hierarchical structures, entire lives revolving around jobs. 
Well, in the last few years, there have been moves by the government and companies to help address work-life balance. The pandemic has accelerated that movement. And although it might not look like much has changed on the surface, experts say Japan's workplace culture is evolving. Yes, it's a massive change. It's, it's almost um, dramatic, but it's definitely the way we need to go. If Japan or any corporation wants to continue to be innovative and be competitive in the market. Meet Hiroki Hiramatsu, Chief Human Resources Officer for Japanese tech giant Fujitsu. He's the architect of its work-life shift initiative, set up to help employees balance their personal and work lives. Fujitsu says it incorporates remote working, hybrid work styles, new digital tools, even working vacations to help boost productivity and well-being. The purpose of the work-life shift initiative is for employees to proactively choose when and where to work. To achieve this, we wanted to create an environment where remote work can be done comfortably. In the office, we needed to change the layout to make it more comfortable for real communication. I used to think the Japanese companies could not change that easily. However, when all our employees in Japan were required to telework because of COVID, everyone adapted to it. Around 80% of our employees said they wanted to make their own choices. Fujitsu first created the initiative so its Tokyo-based staff could work from home during the Olympic Games. But the company launched the plan early nationwide in July 2020. While Fujitsu says a majority of their employees are happy with their new normal, experts say there are challenges. So it's a huge shift in communication between managers and employees. Managers do have to go through this transformation of mindset and start to trust um, their employees. Now, on the employee side, they need to earn the trust of the management, so they have to be more proactive. It's a challenge Hiramatsu is hoping to take on by creating more structured opportunities for communication. Originally, Japanese culture does not allow for frequent feedback. So now, we've put together a system where supervisors and subordinates have one-on-one meetings. What does the future hold? How do you improve upon this initiative? We've seen productivity increase. I think the next goal is to be able to produce more innovative and creative output through collaboration. The final frontier, it turns out, is a junkyard. Earth's orbit is littered with debris that has accumulated since the start of the space race. Now the White House is taking steps to clean it up. CNN's Kristen Fisher reports. In space, what goes up does not always come down. After decades of launches since the dawn of the space age, Earth's orbit has become a junkyard of dead satellites and abandoned rocket bodies. And any time two objects traveling at about five miles a second collide, the impact could look like a scene straight out of the movie Gravity. In real life, no people in space have ever been hit, but the International Space Station has. In 2016, a small piece of debris cracked a window on the orbiting outpost, and in December, its crew prepared for an emergency evacuation after a Russian anti-satellite missile test created a massive debris cloud. We will need to activate Dragon Safe Haven. Today, U.S. Space Command is tracking more than 40,000 objects in space, and only about 5,000 of them are active satellites. The vast majority of space junk still in orbit is from the two major players in the first space race, Russia 
and the United States. If these spacecraft were left there by the U.S. government, and in general they were, um, then that becomes their responsibility to clean it up. And in the same way that the military would not leave a broken down tank on the battlefield, uh, nor would it go ahead and, uh, and leave a ship, um, a derelict ship at sea. But so far, the effort to clean up space has been led by Japan and the European Space Agency and private companies. Some companies like ClearSpace are trying to grab debris with robotic tentacles. Others are trying to catch it with a massive fishing net. And in August, a company called Astroscale successfully tested capturing a small satellite with a magnetic arm. We use a robotic arm that extends and attaches to that metallic plate. That allows us then to uh, basically perform a tow truck or a tug service, bringing that satellite down to a safe distance, and then we can release it to naturally and safely burn up in, in the atmosphere. Astroscale caught the attention of the Prince of Wales, who visited its UK-based mission control this week. The company now has debris removal contracts with the UK, the European Union, and Japan. In the U.S., unfortunately, we haven't seen and we haven't gotten as much traction from the U.S. government. But the Biden administration is starting to change that. In January, the White House held meetings with experts about how to clean up space. And the Space Force is launching a program called Orbital Prime that will give companies the seed funding to do it. Our vision in this partnership is to aggressively explore those capabilities with you today in the hope that we and others can purchase them as a service in the future. And finally, on First Move, you may remember we reported last week that Chinese authorities had changed the ending of the 1999 Brad Pitt movie Fight Club, one of my favorites. They deleted the final scene and added a caption saying the police saved the day. Well, that did not go down too well, even in a country used to censorship. After an outcry, the original ending where debt records were destroyed as skyscrapers were blown up, that has now been restored. And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Feel free to reach out to me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow.